This is On Being, and I'm not Krista Tippett. I'm Pico Ayer. I'm a writer and a traveler and a former guest on this show. And today I'm seeing if I can turn the tables a little by asking some questions of Krista Tippett. Krista is the author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. I spoke with her recently about her New York Times best-selling book at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Our conversation was so fun and so illuminating, we thought we might share it with all of you. Uh, one morning last year, I woke up in Orange County, <laughs> promising beginning, uh, and I had to fly out of LAX before lunchtime. But on my way to the airport, I had to go to a radio station for an interview that had been scheduled almost a year before. So I found myself nosing through this dystopian wilderness of mini-malls and parking lots and warehouses in Culver City, and finally I located the radio station, and I was feeling frazzled and exhausted, really not myself at all, and of course worried about how I would get to the airport afterwards. And somebody took me to a small dark room, and they gave me a pair of headphones, and very soon, a warm, reassuring, melodious voice of somebody I'd never met began talking to me. And within maybe 10 minutes, I was saying things that I didn't even know I had inside myself. And I was saying things I might not have said to most of my closest friends. Uh, this kind stranger seemed to have read every last word I'd ever written. Uh, she knew my thoughts better than I knew them myself. And usually when I go to a radio station, I'm told, well, we have four minutes or maximum of six minutes, so please will you talk in sound bites. Uh, in this instance, we had an uninterrupted 90 minutes, and it really felt like an exploration. And at the end of the 90 minutes, uh, I had to tell this person I had never seen that this had been the most soulful, searching, intimate conversation I could remember having. And I think it's the same experience that Yo-Yo Ma and Mary Oliver and Desmond Tutu have all, and hundreds of others have all known. I think to be on Krista's show on being really changes your life by clarifying it. And I think Krista and her guests have really become some of my closest companions because they discuss the most essential issues with such honesty and vulnerability. But I think even more than that, what she's really done is create a whole community of questioners and searchers. Uh, I have a friend who's a prior of a Benedictine monastery, and he has all his monks listen every day at lunchtime to Krista's program as a form of what they call Lectio Divina, a scriptural reading. And after my show with Krista Tippett aired, um, I got the most interesting and imaginative invitations from Australia and England, all over the place. It's really a global neighborhood uh, that she has helped to create. And I feel that she transforms the public discourse by opening up the inner landscape. So uh, I'll finally end now, but all of you know that she's produced three books so far, uh, Speaking on Faith, takes us into her life and her vision, her work. Uh, Einstein's God orchestrates a dialogue between religion and science. But her brand new book, uh, Becoming Wise, is for me her most eloquent and passionate book yet. And it's really a, a call to hope and a call to action 
and it looks at how age-old issues are taking new forms and perhaps inviting new responses as we try to chart our way through this young century. So please join me in welcoming Krista Tippett. Of course, <laughs> you know how I'm going to begin, because it's how you begin all your shows. Uh, and it's a lovely, soft way to begin, which is to go to the roots and the childhood of your guests and ask them about how, as children, they first began thinking about larger things. And I know that you are the granddaughter of a fire and brimstone Southern Baptist preacher. Mm -hmm. You grew up in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Uh, amidst lots of prohibitions, no drinking, no singing, no card playing, but you always stress that your grandfather and the people around you were lusty and fun and kind. Yes. And I've always wondered whether all of this turned you into a rebel or whether you're already thinking, well, these are two contradictory things going on. Mm. Um, something that's, well, first of all, I just want to say that was, thank you for that introduction. That was beautiful. And I'm so happy to be here at UCSB and part of this program and with PICO. And just the way you, you turned the question of just pointing out those contradictions, um, you know, t just takes me down a slightly different road. Um, yes, I mean, my, my grandfather was this towering religious figure of my childhood. And there were overt things I was learning about God from him. And God was love, but God was scary. And heaven was the place we all wanted to go, but it was kind of mean and small, right? I mean, even Methodists weren't getting in. <laughs> and I'm not making that up. Um, and yet my grandfather in his person was so, as you say, lusty, and there was an integrity about how he carried his convictions so passionately. There was something admirable about that, even if you disagreed with him. And he was funny, and he had a great big mind, but he had a second-grade education. So one thing that I started thinking about in the writing of the book is about um, how that contradictory experience of him, but also the contradictions that were alive in my family. You know, my grandfather, I think, had a good mind, but he had never been invited or trained to ask questions. I mean, he, his Bible was marked up in the most amazing way. But I, I think questions were fearful things for him. And in, in my family, um, there were also, my father had been adopted and there were, there were questions that we weren't invited or permitted to ask. And so I think that the, that the spiritual background of my childhood was... Um, had a lot to do with that, and I, I think that spiritual life for all of us has a lot to do with questioning. And somehow, for me, the way questions were suppressed was painful in ways that I couldn't understand then, but it became this pursuit of mine. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And also, beyond that, very, very human. You know, I think in a couple of your books, you use this wonderful sentence from Reinhold Niebuhr, who says man is his own vexing problem. Yes. And when I listen to you, I feel that religions are very either or. 
but humans are much more complicated. And yes. in some ways, your sense of theology has, seems to have less to do with God than with man. And that's a much bigger story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and theology is as much a discipline of, it's a conversation across time and generations that is as much a sophisticated analysis of the human condition. And in fact, you know, there's a sense in which in the fields of psychology, um, there's an analysis of parts of us. But I think theology and philosophy really are the disciplines in our midst that have delved into this matter of our contradictoriness uh, and our complexity and our beauty and strangeness and our possibilities. Yes. And yes, that was such a great discovery. And it's not what theology is known for (laughs) in public. And I think in this book you write, we are living, breathing both ands. And that seems, again, sort of the essence of the way you see the world. Yes. Um, And then you threw yourself out of contained worlds entirely by going to live in Germany in in the 1980s. Um, And I've I've always loved the fact that you were a journalist, I believe, sending reports Mm -hmm. to the New York Times and others. And then uh, you were working in the U.S. Embassy. And on the one hand, you saw that great surprise of the wall coming down. But on the other, you must have seen some limitations in the public world that sent you back into the inner world. Yes, and that's your language, that inner world, which I love. I love that so much. Yes, yes. And I was focused on the outer world, Um, the outer world as it is um, defined and approached by politics, uh, which I found fascinating. And I, yeah, I was trained as a kind of breaking news journalist. And it was riveting. It was an amazing time to be in Divided Berlin, which was really the fault line of that world, that geopolitical reality, which no one, no one at that moment guessed could vanish. And in the last years of my time in Berlin, I was literally sitting, I was working for an ambassador who was a nuclear arms expert, and literally sitting around these tables where people were moving those missiles around on a map of Europe. Mm. One thing I started to experience that I eventually would would have some moral questioning about. You know, it was so idealistic. I thought we were really there to save the world and make the world a better place. Um, there was this uh, very puzzling and unsettling disconnect between... The, I, I was with people who had very large outer lives, like very large public lives, public persona, you know, people who could give brilliant speeches on nuclear weapons, but I was up very close to that, and I also saw that these same individuals could have these tiny, impoverished inner lives, right? That, that they had poured all of their energy and their effort and their accumulation of knowledge into the outer world. Yeah. And I, I think that that was also t- true of the 20th century, that the 20th century didn't take the inner world Mm. very seriously, right? Because it is messy. It's all this both and, and we kind of thought we could bracket it out and move beyond it, maybe. Yeah, no, Meister Eckhart has that wonderful line, if your inner life is rich, the outer work will never be puny. But it doesn't work the other way around. If your outer life is big, your inner life may shrivel. So you have to start with... Yes. That's probably why you went straight from Germany in the middle of the Cold War to Yale Divinity School. Yes. Um, And I was actually thinking today... 
the coming down of the wall is a perfect metaphor for everything you've been doing ever since, isn't it? It's, it's perfect <laughs> that? that you witness that because it's bringing down the divisions between people and finding the Wow, I never, I never thought about it that way. No, nor did I till today, <laughs> even though I've been listening to you for all these years. And when I read your books and when I listen to your programs, the kind of words that come up again and again are doubt and surprise. And I feel that both of those must be really important to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the surprise a minute mm-hmm. ago of the wall. Um, yes. You know, this is this is a bit glib, but it's still true that the only thing, in fact, that is certain in life is that the next thing that happens will surprise us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the language of surprise, maybe even more than doubt, uh, or just a willingness to be surprised, I think mm-hmm. is a great virtue. And it's a great virtue when we approach other people, strangers, mm-hmm. It's not really the way we get trained. Um, we kind of get trained and educated to arm ourselves yeah. with who we are and with representing that. And there's a place for that. But to walk through the world open to being surprised and open to being surprised by, uh, by people who are very different from us mm. opens all this possibility. And it's also more pleasurable Mm -hmm. than walking through the world armed and ready to judge and thinking you know everything that's a heavy burden to bear knowing everything (laughs) yes (laughs) I'm Pico Iyer and this is On Being today I've decided to turn the tables on Krista Tippett I interviewed her at the University of California, Santa Barbara, as part of this season's Arts and Lectures series. You have this wonderful quote, I think Sherwin Newland might have shared it with you, from Philo of Alexandria. Be kind, because everybody is fighting a huge battle, something like that. That seems to be animating a lot of your conversations. Yes, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Mm. I, I have that on my wall in my office. It's something that you can write down in your journal. It's, it's something that you can take a breath and say to yourself, even when you are with, um, you know, in, in the midst of one of life's many encounters with someone unpleasant, but to remind yourself that they are fighting some kind of battle that you can't see and can't know. And, and you know, you, we know that's true. It's true. Yeah. We say it, and we know it's true of ourselves. We know it's true of everyone we know well. And it, it creates a bridge, or it, it's, it softens. Yeah. No, and in fact, you were saying on our way over here that there are old truths, but there are also old truths that we've forgotten. And that's one of them, because it sounds so self-evident. Yes. But we go through life pushing everyone aside as if, we never knew it. Yeah, um, yeah. And it seems like this book, maybe even more than any of the others, is about taking your ideas and putting them into practice, bringing them to the streets. Would you, would you say you're ever more interested in that? Yes, and um, uh, people have been asking me uh, these last few days, like, how do I define wisdom? Because even though I wrote a book with the word wise in the title, I don't ever say this is wisdom. Right. But there, there are many breeding grounds of wisdom, there are many qualities that it has, but I I think one core aspect of wisdom, when you experience it in another human being, is that that there is an integrity, a connection between um, inner life and outer presence in the world. Mm. 
you know, knowledge is something you can possess. Mm-hmm. Intelligence is something you, we can point mm-hmm. at someone and say, that's an intelligent person. And wisdom is also, it's a possession, but it's a possession that is applied, right? Mm-hmm. So the litmus test of wisdom is not just mm-hmm. what is contained in that person, but their imprint on the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's true that... Um, all these years of this cumulative conversation to me that, I mean, the point of learning to speak together differently is learning to live together differently. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that interested in faith or spiritual life um, that, that doesn't have a practice about it, right? That's mm-hmm. not put into practice. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think, I think you quote the great um, old physicist Freeman Dyson. Mm. He's always had this line I love, which is, I'm not a believing Christian, but I'm a practicing Christian. Yes, right. That's the heart yeah. of it, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> um, and then I think Stephen Batchelor, again, the questioning Buddhist, says something about Buddhism is, is not what you believe, it's what you do. Yes. And I think those are simple formulations, but they open up this whole yes. universe. Um, because, yeah. And I also think that, that that assertion is an antidote to what went wrong with religion, with public religion mm. in this country mm. um, and perhaps in other places. But, you know, religion as a matter of positions and issues and arguments. Um, I mean, to me, that whole phenomenon was about religious voices squeezing themselves into political boxes and political modes of discourse in order to be heard, but in the process, distorting the essential truth of what they were supposed to be representing beyond recognition. In fact, taping the deepest part of us and making it the shallowest sometimes. And, and I'm guessing it was witnessing all that that moved you to, to embark on the show and feel that, as, as you've written often, there's this vast group of us in this country, almost a silent majority, mm. who care about these issues, but we don't want to be fundamentalists, we don't want to be new atheists. We want these questions to be alive. And yes. is that part of the animation behind your hope starting the program? Yes. And, you know, I, I'd, I have just become more, more and more acutely aware of how... In American culture, we hand over our imagination and our deliberation uh, about everything. You know, we, we set up these competing poles, and religious voices have played into that same dynamic as well. Um, you know, any important issue that we have to take up, we, we create the sides. But we know that in life, it rarely works that way, either in ourselves or in anyone we know. I mean, so we hand over our deliberation to, these, to almost a caricature of the deliberation. And we have to take it back, right? Um, I don't know if there's such a thing as the center I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I believe that there's a center. And, and I also think, you know, I think most of us have lots of contradiction in our own, even if we have a position. Mm. Um, but on any important subject, um, left of center, right of center, I think all the way up to those extreme poles that we let frame the discussion, uh, there are people who have some questions left alongside their answers. Mm. And that is the reality. And... I think that we need to claim the power of that vast middle and heart of our life together. Yeah. I mean, that's the open space, and that's where change can happen, I think. And I think, again, 
of a line with everything you've been saying, I feel that with your guests, you're often talking about doubt or suffering or imperfection, mm -hmm. because imperfection is the definition of humanity, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's our times of crisis when we really have to wonder what is going to carry us up. Would you say that that's often something that you're intrigued by because it leads to transformation? Yes, and it's, it's a... So, so there is this great puzzle about life that things go wrong. Right? Like perfection yeah. can be a goal, but it's never a destination. Yeah. And, you know, this has given rise across history to the whole theodicy debate. Like, if there, how could there be a good God, or how could the universe, the balance of the universe be good when there's so much suffering? And so that question is there, and it's real and reasonable. But then there is also this paradox that we are so often made by what would break us. Um, mm. And I think this is where, where our spiritual traditions, where, where spiritual life is so redemptive and necessary, because mm. this is the place in life that says that honors the fact that there's darkness, but also says, and you can find meaning right there, right? Mm -hmm. not, it's not overcoming it. It's mm -hmm. not beyond it. Yeah. It's not in spite of it. Yeah. What goes wrong doesn't have to define us, but, I mean, you know, again, to come back to what wisdom is, as I've seen it, it's people who who walk through whatever darkness, whatever hardship, uh, whatever imperfection and, uh, you know, unexpected catastrophes or, you know, the, like, the huge and the, and the ordinary losses of any life, who walk through those and integrate them into wholeness on the other side, that you're whole and healed, not fixed, you know, not in spite of those things, but because of how you have let them be part of you. You can listen again and share this conversation through onbeing.org. I'm Pico Aya. On Being continues in a moment. This is On Being, and I'm not Krista Tippett. I'm Pico Aya. I'm a writer and a longtime fan of the show, as well as a one-time guest, and today I'm performing a kind of theft of the dial whereby I ask the questions to host Krista Tippett about her New York Times bestseller, Becoming Wise. We spoke recently before an audience at the University of California at Santa Barbara. You have this beautiful line in your book, I think, we, we learn to walk by falling down, and it's yeah. a perfect reminder that we can't yeah. do anything unless yeah. we're willing to fall. Really, one of the most moving moments um, I can remember in my life was I went with the Dalai Lama up to a fishing village that had been completely devastated by the tsunami. 19,000 people died there. The whole place was in ruins. And when he got there, hundreds of people were lined up along the road. Just they were so touched that he'd come to seek them out. And then when he got out of the car, he went and he blessed them and he held them and he gave them lots of inspiring words. Uh, you know, look to the future. That's how you can honor the people you've lost and build up your community as your country built up itself after World War II. And all the kind of things you would hope 
a man of wisdom would say. And then when he turned around, I saw there were tears in his eyes. And I thought, that's what wisdom really is. Um, the ability to pass on exactly the right kind of truth, but to feel the yeah. suffering yeah. And, and the helplessness before it, and, and to be a human in the midst of being a wise man. Um, yes. And I think one of the bravest things that you do in your writing is, I, I'm guessing you're a fairly shy person, despite your position in the public. And you write about the difficulties in your own life. I think in your first book you mentioned that you suffered through periods of clinical depression mm -hmm. and you're, you're divorced to the, from the father of your children. And in this new book, um, you talk a little bit about your separation from your father. Mm -hmm. And clearly that's something that's still with you every day. Yes, um, yes. And yes. Um, that was a hard thing about writing the book. And um, I, it came uh, late First of all, just that I had to get out of the mode of being the person who asks the questions and who's drawing other people out. But then uh, the book just it didn't come alive for a long time. And I realized, actually, I also had to uh, do what I ask other people to do, which I know makes you know makes ideas come to life and also makes them listenable makes them land in the imaginations of the listener with mm -hmm. vitality which is to really walk that line that intersection between what you know and who you are mm -hmm. and yeah and then i had to actually you know <laughs> i had to be honest even just with myself mm -hmm. um about the you know the hard the sad parts of my life and yeah. those things that I wrestle with. And uh, so there's the, there's the middle chapter of the book, which is really important to me, is the chapter on love. Yeah. Um, I really believe that in this 21st century where our lives, our well-being, our, our survival, our flourishing is linked to the well-being of others in a way and others on the other side of the planet, as well as the other side of the city, in a way that is unprecedented in human history, that, uh, that love as something practical and robust and muscular, not romantic, uh, love in all its fullness, is, is maybe the, the only calling high enough for us to rise to this occasion. But uh, love is also absolutely the hardest thing. So, you know, to be honest about what that challenge is collectively, um, I had to really be honest about what that challenge is close to home. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, my life of love is, um, there's a lot of beauty in it, and there's been a lot of failure in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, uh, I think that's true for everybody with infinite variety. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I think, an especially difficult thing for somebody who's sort of in the limelight and uh, who's regarded by many people as a spiritual guide to, yeah, that's right. <laughs> to render herself so, so vulnerable. Yeah. But I think that's, that's the power of it because it reinforces you're not somebody with all the answers. You have yeah. questions. When, when I listen to you on the show and when I was talking to you on your show, your questions sound completely genuine. You were really trying to find out, uh, yeah. to engage with a person, walk into the mystery with that person. And... Um, and it's wonderful that you have none of the answers in advance or not all the answers in your life because that 
what gives the, the life to it. And I notice, um, I think one of your most recent shows broadcast was with the poet David White. Yes, yes. Um, and, and one of the lovely qualities you bring into many discussions is motherhood. And I think you said your second child is about to go off to college and suddenly yes. six months from now it's going to be an empty house. Right? It's going so. to be a whole new world. Yeah. Right, and... So I am all about deromanticizing virtues, and so the, the the bad news is that if we tell the truth about love, um, it's a hard truth. It's just uh, you know, love um, crosses the chasms between us, and it brings them into relief mm-hmm. like nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good news is, uh, when we think about something lofty like love if you know imagining that as a public virtue which by the way all the great social reformers have done right that was martin luther king's dream the beloved community uh, that's the unfinished business now um the the changes in laws and policies you know flowed out of that but we do get to take seriously our um concrete experiences with these things right so if i'm reflecting on love as a a lens for us to reimagine our economic and racial disparities, or even to put that in different language, you know, our belonging to each other. And, and if, if, our, if our starting point, if our vision is our belonging to one another, you know, what different um, strategies and visions flow out of that different starting point? But then, you know, so, so to be practical, to go into that in a, in a, in a realistic and powerful way, is to really analyze, like, what do I know about love mm. in my ordinary life? And in fact, I know a lot. And a lot of what I know is challenging, but knowledge is a form of power. And I think you write, in the end we'll be me- measured not by what we've accomplished, but by how we love. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you refer to motherhood as fierce love, which I really like. Yes, the fiercest, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's so interesting to me that, I mean, even as you're looking at the hard stuff of the heart and the spirit and the world, the atmosphere of your show is really positive. I feel it's always looking forwards and and, and tilted towards hope. And you write a lot about hope in this new book. But one of the things I love, for example, is that you have one of your guests talking about Hurricane Katrina. And all of us associate that with dispossession and the fractures in our society. He points out it was the greatest event of civil giving in the history of the United States. In other words, just to speak to what you've been saying, people reached out to the other more than at any other time in history. And I think again and again, even in the face of public disaster, you're highlighting these points of hope that, of course, the regular media tends to jump over or or to put on page A14 a bit. That's right, Um, yeah, in a little sidebar. Yeah. Um, Right. Uh, journalism, as it's come down to us from the 20th century, is incredibly sophisticated at analyzing, you know, the crisis, the catastrophe, the corruption, mm-hmm. the failure. Mm-hmm. And those realities are, are, are there and need to be reckoned with, but they aren't, they aren't the whole story. They're never the whole story. And it's actually often in a crisis that people most forget themselves in the best way. And suddenly, without yes. even thinking about it, scoop somebody up the railway track or, or whatever. Yes. Um, when the worst happens in the world, uh, there's always a, a part of that story where people rise to the occasion. Mm. I think about this so much. Uh, Dorothy Day, 
um, saints, none of the actual people who have been sainted were cartoon cut-out characters with, with perfect lives. I mean, they had rough edges, and, uh, and they, they knew the darkness in the world and in themselves. Um, so Dorothy Day had this really messy life, um, a beautiful life. And I see the, you know, a defining moment for her, again, coming back to this spiritual origin of questions, where she's an eight-year-old girl in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, living in Oakland, and watches uh, people just emerging from that devastation, and watches also all the adults around her start caring for strangers in a way she's never seen before. And, you know, with the clear-sightedness of a child, you know, she sees that somehow they knew how to do this all along. And she asks this question, why can't we live this way all the time? And I think that her life was one long, you know, she walked into that question, and the Catholic worker was part of her answer to that question. I, I love that question. I think we could ask that kind of question. You know, that could be like just a spiritual discipline in very ordinary moments, in very ordinary weeks. And this happens to us all the time, and we kind of don't honor it in a way by not taking it seriously. Kindnesses, you know, at little moments of kindness from a stranger that make your day. You were having a bad day, and suddenly you're not anymore. And just... Um, Letting that question, why can't we live this way all the time when we show the best of ourselves, letting that animate us. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a variation on the age-old universal spiritual principle of having a skull on your desk. In other words, realizing time is limited. Yeah. We may have six months, we, may have, we don't know. But if you are given such a sentence or bear that in mind as monks in every tradition do, then instantly you think tomorrow... If I only have a few days left, what am I going to do? Extend myself entirely to somebody else. Give myself only to what sustains me. Think about what's important. And one thing that you stress again and again, I think one of the things I most appreciate about your show, it's very rigorous. And at points uh, in the book, you say, well, words like tolerance or diversity, even love, have slightly lost their meaning because we throw them around all the time. Yeah. They're attenuated. But you stress that hope is not the same as optimism. No. And optimism can lead us into the clouds. Yeah, I, I never yeah. use the word optimism. Yeah. And I know I have met people who use optimism the way I use the word hope. But, but for me... Um, Optimism sounds like kind of wishful thinking, you know, we'll yeah. hope for the best, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll see the sunny side, yeah. and for me, hope as a force, as a resource, um, is reality-based, uh, it sees the darkness, it takes that seriously, it sees the possibility for good and redemption, and takes that seriously, and it, it's a choice, and it's also, it's an action. It's, it's something you put into practice. And I, I do love this convergence of, um, of our need for virtues in the world, of our need for tools to pin aspiration to action, and also what we're learning through neuroscience about how what you practice you become. And that goes for being more patient, being more hopeful, being more compassionate, mm -hmm. just like it goes for any other skill. Um, and so I think, you know, you can choose to be hopeful, which is a more courageous, far more courageous uh, choice than cynicism. I mean, cynicism is really easy. 
um, is never surprised or disappointed, um, and doesn't lift a finger to change anything. Yeah. And um, but hope can be, uh, you know, we can we can develop spiritual muscle memory. Yes. The more we do it, the more we... And it's really not about feeling it. It doesn't have to be about feeling it in the first instance, but it can become instinctive. Yeah. Yes, I think you say it's a choice that can become a habit that becomes spiritual muscle memory, yeah. which is exactly the Dorothy Day phenomenon. And in my limited ex- experience, Desmond Tutu or Martin Luther King or Dalai Lama, all saying that. Desmond Tutu begins one of his books and he says, I'm not an optimist, I'm not an idealist, mm. I'm a realist. And right. that's you have to begin with reality I love that. To, yeah. to change it. Pico Aya, and this is On Being. Today, I'm asking questions of the usual host of the show, a friend from afar, Krista Tippett. I interviewed her at the University of California, Santa Barbara, as part of this season's Arts and Lectures series. Well, I've got to ask you, as you talk about hope and spirit and intimacy and all these, the most precious stuff of life that's not always in the public domain, um, do you have, uh, are there pressures put upon you about whom you choose as guests or what kind of things you say? Do people ever say to you, well, this is not going to reach 10 million people, this is too subtle or thoughtful or something? Uh, yeah, well, there was a lot of that in the early years. Mm. Um, you know, we tell ourselves all these stories about how we have such limited attention spans mm. and how we have an appetite for entertainment. And, and I think that there's truth to that. We have been trained to be entertained and to need uh, things to be efficient. But, um, but I also think that this profusion of, I mean, all the things that come at us in some ways reawakens our need to carve out at least some little space where we can go deep and be quiet Mm. and be reflective. Mm. You know, there's language in media about people would say, well, if you're having these serious, these big conversations, it would have to be destination listening. This was in like the early 2000s. And they basically said, you know, there's people don't do destination listening. They do destination TV, but they don't do destination radio. And that was kind of true, but the miracle in the meantime is podcasting, which creates the opportunity for destination listening. And we have so many millennials in our space. Um, they have audio habits, and they have these portable devices, and, and so they can actually carve out that space and decide, you know, and they can even multitask. So, I mean, you can <laughs> run and listen to the, <laughs> to the long-form, in-depth conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I often think of your show as having more poetry than anything in it, oh. not just because you feature poets, but more because poetry slows us down, and your yes. show it stretches our attention span. And poetry is really about romancing the mystery and makes one think that anything that diminishes mystery is a kind of blasphemy. It takes us into that imaginative space that you've been describing where we don't know what's going and we're searching and that's the excitement of it. Um, But I also think you're sort of redefining intimacy. I mean, you have actually a lot of 
wisdom in your book that all of us can use about exactly what avenues will shut out conversation just in daily mm. life and which will open them up. And you say that if there are certain things that will put somebody on the defensive and that's the end of the interaction, there are others that will open them up and then you just go deeper and deeper. So yeah. I, in some ways, I mean, I've learned to be a human being by listening to your program and thinking about what are the ways when I meet somebody tomorrow, I can try, and try to draw that person out rather than to, you know, create the divisions mm. between them. And I, I was thinking over these last few days and months um, whether you feel there are other places that you can turn in the media for similar kind of sustenance. I thought, well, apart from your reading of books. And um, I, you know, these days, I don't take in media the, the way I used to, which may be true of a lot of us. Yeah. You know, what I don't have any appetite for, I just have so little appetite for, like, just kind of straightforward news coverage anymore. Because it's demoralizing. It's not the whole story. Yes. And so I, like, I love, you know, science news that is actually telling us what yes. we're, you know, a story yeah. of what we're learning about ourselves. And it's... It's often so strange and, you know, unexpected. I mean, that's where you have this real surprise, and there's a lot of beauty in it. And, mm -hmm. and even if it's hard news, it's, uh, it's told in a complex way. Um, I, I love a lot of the journalism around food now. Mm -hmm. And there's some great BBC, and there's a, there's a BBC. They, they have the most boring titles. I mean, the fact that everyone hears it means that they don't have to work at all to make it uh, you know, cool. So it's like the food program. But it's this brilliant program. Um, about, and it's really not about food. It's about how... Um, it, it, and, and, you know, in the book, I mean, I ended up writing a lot about food and us as creatures who eat and... Um, I mean, food is about sustenance, and food is one of these, a perfect example of this, you know, that you know, wisdom can be something you accumulate. It can be new insights, new discoveries. But sometimes wisdom comes in the form of relearning something that we knew forever and then forgot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the area of the entire subject of how we eat and how we grow and raise what we eat, which has all these economic implications. It's also, that is also a reminder that progress, that innovation is not always progress. Yeah. So we walked down this long road to completely distorting not just our agriculture, but our own bodies. And so now we are just, you know, painfully pulling that back, <laughs> rediscovering, like, local food, like rediscovering local food, uh, rediscovering real food. It's incredible. Um, so, so I don't know. So I guess like this is the kind of news I like because yeah. this actually is telling the story of our time yeah. as much as those stories of crisis. So that's kind of what I take in. Yeah. And one of the inherent challenges of your job must be that often those people who know the most and have most to impart are the most private. And the, the yes. quiet voices are the ones that, that you actually have to go and find because yes. they're not the ones we're hearing on the media. Uh, and the people who know most about faith say least about it. Is that your yes. experience? Or, yes. Um, uh, it's a real irony that um, you know, the people who are changing the world in good ways often have a quality of humility about them. They don't have publicists. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't branded themselves. Yeah. 
um, I mean, there are there are people who are changing the world in good ways who are also good at branding. But but there are a lot of um, I would say I would say the you know there's this notion of you know the change that happens in the margins, which is where real social change, the human change that makes social change possible, has always begun, and it begins out of sight. And that this I think I, I think of this as a spiritual discipline, especially in a world where we have so much information. Um, this spiritual discipline of of going out and looking for those redemptive parts of our of our common story that precisely because they are so beautiful and true and humble are not going to jump up and down and say hey pay attention to me um, listening for those voices uh, that will not shout and it's precisely you know the the goodness that they bring is precisely in that fact, and it's also why we have to we have to listen for them. They will not throw themselves in front of microphones. Yeah. No, and I think one of the, <coughs> the exhilarating things in this new book are there are a lot of very young voices. Yeah. There are more women, I think, than ever before. There's a greater diversity of um, backgrounds in it. Um, just my last question would be: What is hardest for you in in your life or in your work? What is hardest for yeah. me? Hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes I think people sometimes imagine that because I soak up all this wisdom, I must be really <laughs> special, as extra wise mm. myself. <laughs> and in fact, I, you know, I have a life like everyone else, and I think parenting is just this, you know, unfolding experience of humility <laughs> where you, you, you learn all the time what you don't know or what you might have done better um, and, I, and my life is no different you know I mean I mean a lot of weeks uh, you know my moments of great accomplishment is when I manage to get the recycling out on the right day right I mean so uh, maybe I would say at this point in my life um, it is precisely that uh, wanting to hold myself a bit more to uh, letting myself take in. Even, I ended up stressing in the book, and like I had to keep reminding myself to stress that um, talking about wisdom and virtue, that these are pleasurable things, mm-hmm. right? That life is better, that your step is lighter, mm-hmm. that pleasure and delight itself is a virtue. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of intense, right? I've been kind of intense in my life. And I, I talk at the book, I mean, my childhood was made me that way too. And it's, been, it's also been a gift. Um, but I've often, I'm ta- I talk to young people a lot, and people in their 20s, and, and I say, you know, if there's one thing I wish someone would have said to me that I could have taken in is, you know, yes, you will be, you will be beset by doubts, right? You will be second-guessing yourself, and you, you'll think you're supposed to have things figured out. Um, but whatever is going on, n- know to take pleasure. Like, whatever there is to take pleasure in, do that. And I, and I think I'm talking to myself still when I'm, when I'm saying that. And... Uh, I actually think one of the great things about getting older, about you know, being in my 50s, they say that, um, that when we're younger, our brains are tuned to novelty, to, to be animated by novelty. But as you get older, um, 
you know, you're less tuned to novelty, and I say I would say more naturally attuned to to kind of take pleasure in what is ordinary and habitual. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great gift. Mm-hmm. So, I am trying to you know really live into that, mm-hmm. and also just uh, I mean it's so ironic because I have all these conversations about health and wholeness and trauma <laughs> and healing and you know I mean just being rested and restored. Mm-hmm. So my struggles um, are pretty pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell, by the way, what a good listener you are, because usually when I'm sitting in this chair, I say almost nothing, and you've got me babbling and babbling through this evening so, with your attentiveness. <laughs> Thank you. It's a conversation. It's not an interview. It is. Um, and I just want to end by saying you, you had a really profound program with the poet Christian Wyman. Yes. And he said that every now and then he starts wondering if there's a future for poetry or is he going to be able to support his family or what's going to happen next month. He's living with uncertainty. And then he has a really um, honest and intimate conversation with a friend. And he says beautifully, it clears the air and it returns him to the best part of himself. So I just want to thank you on behalf of all of us for clearing the air tonight and clearing the air for millions of us for many, many years and bringing us back to that part that's most cherished and most easily lost. So thank you so much. Krista Tippett's books include Speaking of Faith, Why Religion Matters and How to Talk About It, and Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit. Her latest book is Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Okay, now I'm taking the microphone back. Thank you, Pico Iyer. I love his book, The Art of Stillness, and his fantastic work of reportage and memoir, The Open Road, about his three decades of conversation and travel with the 14th Dalai Lama. And my interview of Pico remains one of our most popular podcasts ever. Find that, listen to this show again, and discover all the shows we've ever produced at onbeing.org. Over the years, some of you have asked us to produce shorter, shareable content, and we have heard you. We've just launched the new Becoming Wise podcast, vignettes on the mystery and art of living, drawing on stunning moments with voices like Brene Brown, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, John O'Donohue, and Elizabeth Alexander. Find these and all Becoming Wise episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. There's a new edition every Monday. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Marie Sambolet, Tess Montgomery, Asil Zaron, Bethany Klecker, and Selena Carlson. Special thanks this week to Roman Baratiak, Eric Moore, Miguel DaCosta, and Daniel Maldonado at UC Santa Barbara. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build a spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. 
Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.